Ah, hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical realities of today. And what do I got for you today? Well, today we're going to be talking about the attack on the Novaya Kakovka Dam in Ker- not Kherson, in the Zaporizhia region of Ukraine. We're going to be talking about the great Ukrainian counteroffensive, as we have more to talk about this time around. And then we're going to get into the latest story about China setting up a spy base in Cuba. All that and more coming up.
Alrighty, let's get into the meat of today's episode. So, the Novaya Kakovka Dam. Uh, the Novaya Kakovka Dam, which is a large dam in the Kherson region of Ukraine, has, uh, and I believe it's on the Dnieper River, I, the Dnieper, I believe. You know what? Let's look up what river the dam is on, just to be sure. We'll look it up while I uh, go over my notes here. Uh, okay. But uh, anyway, so the the dam has suffered partial collapse, which has caused some major flooding in nearby areas. And it's believed that that the Ukraine that well, they're saying that the Russians did it, but I believe it's the Ukrainians. But one of the interesting things that I see here is that with this this partial collapse it hasn't completely gone down like the dam is still there it's just the reservoir has been damaged uh and the fresh water supply to crimea has sort of been disrupted as well though not critically it hasn't been critically disrupted and i imagine that with the recurrent emphasis of like the belt and road and infrastructure that russia will eventually They'll eventually build some like desalination plants in Crimea to solve that problem definitively. Either that or a series of like canals. Because the water issue has been a chronic problem in Crimea for a long time. So I think that by the time this war, sometime after the conclusion of this war, the Russians are going to get to work on that. But that's a separate issue. But with the flooding, the water has come along and it's threatening to cause serious damage to the Zaporizhia power plant. The same power plant that, um, shoot, around this time last year, was being shelled by the Ukrainians. And back then, they were saying it was the, the Russians, but then the IAEA came in, and the Russians had to escort them in and out because the Ukrainians were still bombing the power plant. And so I find it incredibly suspect that now with the bombing of this dam and the subsequent flooding that's come, that now this same power plant is being threatened by the water. Uh, it's, it's, it's yet another act of terrorism. And that's what, that's what I feel that it is. Yet another act of terrorism, yet another be action that goes that feeds straight into what we've observed throughout this war which is the ukrainian war effort devolving into terrorism or at the very least the terrorist aspect of ukraine's war effort and of course war is ugly no matter how you cut it but certain kinds of warfare hit a little differently than conventional warfare we all recognize conventional warfare it's the unconventional warfare that you start to get into the weeds a little bit about right and wrong. But I think with the Ukrainian weeds, we can sort of definitively say it's wrong because it's not just the terrorism. It is nuclear terrorism. And I, I've said it before a few weeks ago when I came out and initially said that they are a nuclear terrorist state. That's what the Ukrainians have become, a nuclear terrorist state. And it's not something I say lightly. It's just what we've observed. When you see the pattern of behavior, it's 
kind of hard to come to a different conclusion. And it's not like I haven't been fair to the Ukrainians. I've just observed their actions. And the conclusion is that they are a nuclear terrorist state. I mean, you bombed the, the power plants in Kherson and Zaporizhia. You bought, you tried to bomb Chernobyl when the Russians were coming through to destabilize it. And the Russians had to come in and secure it again. They, they fired drones off at the Engels Air Base. And now they're, they're bombing the dam. And the flooding is threatening to cause damage again to this this same power plant. This same power plant. And then you add to that the basic acts of terrorism, which like the, the drone strikes on the Kremlin and on Moscow, mul- multiple drone strikes, the raid into Belograd just to strike terror into the Russians, the Kerch Strait bridge bombing where you had that truck that drove along the bridge and then just blew up and took out like a whole lane on the bridge. It's terrorism. It's terrorism. And then it's nuclear terrorism. And that's, that's the big danger here. Like it's really not cool. Not that war itself is cool. In reality, it's cool to read about. It's cool to watch a documentary about, but when faith, when you're actually looking at the war, it's not cool in general, but nuclear Come on now, that this is this is incredibly dangerous. Like, imagine, imagine, and do we even really need to get into the the depleted uranium shells that the Ukrainians were planning to use, that they were supplied by Britain to kill Russians and give them radiation poisoning? Do we do we even really need to get into that? And of course, they got bombed. Those supplies got blown up, and now it's the Ukrainians. Are going to be poisoned by the dust of those depleted uranium shells. Countless numbers of Ukrainians are going to be suffering long-term consequences because of that. Because they're playing nuclear games and they're getting nuclear prizes on a much smaller scale than they could, thank goodness. But a smaller scale than they could is really understating the danger here. Because let's, let's think about what would have happened had they been successful in any of these raids, in any of these attacks on nuclear infrastructure. What if they had actually succeeded in destabilizing the nuclear power plants they were bombing, from the Kherson power plant to the Zaporizhia power plant, Chernobyl? What if they had succeeded in making these things melt, have meltdowns and go full nuclear? And are you talking irradiating the land around it for hundreds of years? What if they had been successful? What if they damaged a nuclear warhead when they sent those drones off at Angles Air Base? A base that they knew housed nuclear weapons. How do they know? Because Ukraine used to be a part of Russia for hundreds of years. They knew. And if they didn't know... The U.S. military intelligence knew the the same intelligence that we've been feeding them ever since the war began. What if they had damaged a nuclear warhead? You're talking millions of people being put in danger by the actions of the Ukrainian government playing these games with nuclear infrastructure. 
and it's always it's it's always attempts to destroy and destabilize these pieces of critical infrastructure if if they had been successful in their attempts to sabotage these power plants to dish to hit a nuclear missile in angles air base or if they had succeeded in decapitating the russian government oh my god millions of people could have died millions from the radiation poisoning of the the power plants from a, a nuke going off in angles air base to if they if they had succeeded in decapitating the russian government the russian dead hand goes off scott ritter talks in length about this there's constant signals going off between the russian bases these uh sensors that send signals back uh, back and forth between them and various nodes across the country if they stop receiving signals they will assume that russia has been attacked and the government's been decapitated and then they'll send off the nukes and then everyone fucking dies this is this is the danger of playing stupid games with nuclear infrastructure and to uh, to an extent we also have to extend that ridicule and the the blame here towards the western governments who keep egging on ukraine and keep feeding them and rewarding them for their actions because ukraine couldn't do this without american money ukraine couldn't do this without american weapons and yet they do why because we give them money and we give them weapons we enable their bad behavior if your friend is a is has a chronic drinking problem and you're the one buying the alcohol you are enabling them we are enabling ukraine to do the things that they are doing and if every time that they bomb an, a power plant we reward them with a billion more dollars they're gonna keep bombing power plants because they know it's gonna get them more money they can they can use it say oh we did something we did this and then we'll give them more money so at a certain point we have to also lay the blame at our own feet for enabling this it's ridiculously dangerous the game that's being played right now i i stand by i stand by strongly my belief that we should not be involved in this war and no it's not because china's the real enemy and we have to go over and fight taiwan and get into the exact same situation in a, a worse location no because it, it it's dangerous it's too dangerous and it not quite frankly doesn't make sense for us to be involved from a geographic standpoint, let alone a political standpoint, Ukraine's not our ally. And yet we have treated them better than an ally. We've treated them like the 51st state. It's insane. And the levels of escalation that we are seeing are driving this country and this planet towards annihilation. Because again, what if Ukraine had been successful in damaging critically these pieces of nuclear infrastructure a lot of people would be in danger a lot of people would die and because they are doing these actions a lot of people are still in danger the the, the danger just isn't as clear and present as it otherwise would have been but this is yet another act of nuclear terrorism that it's just another notch on the belt that allows me to say that and allows me to brand them with that label because that's what they have become Ukraine is a nuclear terrorist state. Now, of course, you have the 
the propaganda press trying to pin the blame on Russia because we, while we don't have conclusive evidence that it was the Ukrainians, we do have a pattern of behavior. And quite frankly, let, let, come on now, the, the dam is within Russian controlled territory in this war. So the idea that the Russians were the ones who bombed the dam, that was, uh, again, the reservoirs of, the, of which were supplying fresh water to Crimea, the idea that the Russians were the ones to blow up the dam is an incredible stretch, especially when you see how well that they've been faring against Ukraine's counteroffensive as of yet. They don't have any reason or incentive to damage this, this well, dam. They don't have any reason to do that. And it's under their control. So am I, am I really supposed to believe the Russians bombed the dam that they control right now? Is that is that the path that we're going to go down again? Are we gonna, we're going to play this game where we sit here and go, are we, are we really going to believe that it was the Russians who bombed the power, the nuclear power plants in Zaporizhia and Kherson? Are we really going to believe that the Russians blew up the pipelines, the Nord Stream pipelines that they built, that they send their gas through when they could just turn off the tank? Are we really now going to believe that they blew these the, the, the dam up that they control? No, I don't believe it. The pattern of behavior is there. It's an established pattern of behavior. And it, it's more than enough to suggest to me that it was the Ukrainians. It, that's what I believe. And I'm pretty sure that in time we will have the, the conclusive evidence for that. So I, I will, even though I've gone off on this tirade, I will have to concede that it's not clear cut that it was Ukraine. Although, although even with the blame being attempted on, uh, uh, being attempted to pin the blame on Russia, the pattern of behavior is there, not just because the Ukrainians bomb consistently infrastructure, they engage in terrorist acts, and they bomb and try to damage nuclear infrastructure. I also say this because Ukraine fired missiles at this same dam late last year. They fired missiles at the Novaya Kokovka Dam last year. They didn't destroy the dam. They didn't damage it enough to cause, well, the damage that we see today. But they've already attacked the dam before. So not only do we have the pattern of behavior of them engaging in acts of terrorism, specifically infrastructure sabotage, but we also have them a, a, a history of them attacking the dam, this specific dam. So it's an overwhelming amount of circumstantial evidence points the finger at Ukraine. I'll say that much. I'll say that much. But now we'll move on to our next subject. We'll get into that next part, which is the great Ukrainian counteroffensive which I'll say right off the bat is going much worse than was anticipated and hoped by the analysts and the outlets who were expecting Ukraine to finally break Russia and push them all the way back to the Black Sea. At least as of now, the offensive has gone on for about a week. Uh, we're going into the second week of the offensive now, but it hasn't gone very well for the Ukrainians. It's gone about as badly as I expected. Although, like with the, the topic of the demographics that we talked about briefly in the rapid fire segment, 
it's one thing to say that something's going to happen. It's one thing to look and project forward to see what's going to happen based on previous results and the trends that you see. It's another thing to see that thing come to fruition. And now we're seeing that thing come to fruition. Because Ukraine's counteroffensive, while going on, Ukraine still hasn't, uh, they still haven't acknowledged that they are in this counteroffensive. They won't even say that. They won't even say it. But Ukraine's counteroffensive is currently still at a standstill. Like there's there's back and forth a little bit in the northern parts of the Zaporizhia region, which is where the offensive has been primarily focused in uh, Zaporizhia. So it's not it's not the Kherson. They're not going for Kharkov. They're going for Zaporizhia. In again, what looks to be an attempt at either an encirclement or an outflanking maneuver that forces that that makes the Russian position in Kherson untenable, which from a a grand strategic point of view does make sense for the Ukrainians to do, rather than go straight at the Russians in Kherson, you attack them and try to threaten their flanks. The problem is that the Russians are dug in and they have tank traps. They have dragon's teeth, which are like big stone, almost pyramid, stone slash concrete, almost pyramids, which are large enough to stop a tank from moving through it. And you have really a lot of obstacles and you have barbed, they have barbed wire in some places, but it's just, it's a nightmare. It's a nightmare for a defensive line with no bunkers it's one hell of a nightmare it is world war one incarnate built on a an incredibly short frame of time the russians were prepared for this and the ukrainians are now bashing their head against the one spot in the line that makes the most sense for them to attack from a, a grand strategy point of view but from a tactical point of view makes zero sense to attack it, make, it makes zero sense to attack because of how dug in and fortified the Ukrainians are here. Like, it it doesn't... It, you, you're not going to get through this because it's not just one defensive line, it's defense in depth, and which is another uh, interesting thing to observe with this war because both Russia and Ukraine are abiding by, or at least they were in the beginnings, and to a lesser extent now it still holds true, they were abiding by the same military doctrine, which is the Soviet doctrines that were prevalent during World War II, which is massing ma- massive amounts of men. You, you have deep battle, right? So you, you send men in, you don't send them in a, as a, a single unit to try to make a breakthrough. You send them in waves so that as they make contact with the line, you see what parts of the enemy line start to falter. And then you push your reserves into there and you th- then you push deep as far as you can behind the enemy lines, and you just make the enemy's position untenable, then they have to pull, pull back. And with a single battle, with by focusing your forces on the weakest point of the line, you can force an enemy to retreat. And if they don't retreat, you encircle them. So you've seen that those offensive tactics on both sides of this war. Uh, particularly, we saw it with the Kherson offensive, and we're seeing it now where the Ukrainians will send in thin waves of men at the line to try to test the line the russian lines to see what places do and don't stack up uh do and don't hold up i should say to the offensives and then they 
try to concentrate their forces on the weaker parts of the line, but the Russians have been very solid in their defense uh, in most cases. There's obviously the Russian withdrawal from the Kharkov region uh, towards a more consolidated line, and then there was the Russian withdrawal from Kherson after they had already essentially slaughtered tens of thousands of Ukrainians who had attacked the Russian lines. So that isn't exactly the best example of them succeeding, but we have observed that method of attack, the deep battle, where you send in waves and then you focus on one point after you've sort of jostled the enemy line. But the defensive side of that is defense in depth, which is where you have not just a front line and a back line, you have trench after trench line after defensive line after defensive line after dug in after dug in and it just goes on and on and on and the more you want and the more important it is to defend an area the more trenches you make and it just goes on for miles and miles to the point where sure you can get past one defensive line sure you can get past two or three but can you get past five can you get past ten 12 like it, it gets toxic it really does get toxic when you have enough men to execute it and that's what the soviets did to grind down the blitzkrieg especially in the bigger battles uh not necessarily stalingrad stalingrad was uh, the city but in once the soviets really got their act together and they had their men in the field and they were able to execute on their their doctrines they were really good on the defensive they were really good on the defensive, which is how they ground the, the Blitzkrieg to a halt. And then once the Soviets were the ones on the move, every time the Germans would try to counterattack, they just get ground down by line after line after line after line of Soviet defense. And then once they'd been all but halted, the Soviets would just close in on their flanks. Like, again, it, it gets toxic. <laughs> it gets really toxic when you see how many lines of defense that it... Uh, the, the defenders might have and it's like okay well how in tarnation am i supposed to get past that well you're not supposed to it's the western front but applied to the, the vast spaces of the eastern front like again i'm referring to world war one here so instead of having one two or three trenches you just have trent and then miles of open space behind that for a reward for anyone who can get past your defenses which is what happened with Maginot line where you got past one defensive line oh and then you you have all access to all of france oh you got past the this the hindenburg line now you have access to all of germany instead of a single line and you can even go back to earlier periods like with the uh the war between prussia and denmark uh, over the schleswig holstein wars where they they got past that one defensive line that the danish had and then they had access to all of denmark but with the defense in depth, there is no, you get past the front line, the defensive line, and the backup line, and then you have access to miles of undefended land. No, it's line after line after line after line. And that's what the Russians have in Zaporizhia. But the Ukrainians are at the front line. They're fighting the Russians on the Russian front line. They have not made it to the defensive line, the first defensive line. And from what we can tell, the Russians have two really solid defensive lines and a number of others between the ukrainians have yet to make it to the first of the defensive lines 
and they're already suffering these really large casualties. They're, they're suffering large numbers of casualties. They're losing even more tanks and armored vehicles. Uh, we talked about like 10 last time when it had just begun. But now we see that uh, we're a lot more of these tanks and armored vehicles have been destroyed. Ukrainian forces, again, have been all but halted, and uh, they haven't reached those defensive lines yet, which is the most impressive part about the Russian defense and perhaps the most disastrous feature of this offensive. They're taking really heavy losses with nowhere near the kinds of gains that would justify them. We've seen Leopard 2 tanks being confirmed as present on the battlefield, and around 10 or so have been destroyed out of the 60 which have been provided to them, and that number goes up by the day. There was a photo taken of a Russian soldier standing in front of a field where a number of burnt-out vehicles, which are believed to be American Bradleys, uh, those armored fighting vehicles, which in the picture you can see five, Alexander of the Duran cites that around 12 or so American Bradleys have been destroyed. He says a dozen, that could mean 12 or 13. We've seen a number of French tanks have been destroyed. So in total, we're looking at around 30 tanks and a similar number of uh, armored vehicles, or if not slightly higher number of armored vehicles like Bradleys and, and whatnot, have been confirmed to have either been destroyed or taken out of commission. Now, we're waiting on more solid numbers for the casualties to come out, but as of now, we're looking at around, well, at the time that I wrote this, it was 7,000 casualties, according to the Russian Ministry of Defense, and which was corroborated. Uh, well, I wouldn't say corroborated because these numbers are primarily coming out of the Russian side. The Ukrainians haven't spoken too much. But they were saying around 7,000 casualties, and that was Friday, which would have meant around a thousand casualties a day since the beginning of this offensive which it means that around now we're looking at nine to ten thousand casualties as of my recording this potentially higher a thousand men a day the russian ministry of defense said that ukraine has lost up to 1200 men and 39 tanks within a 24-hour period uh, so that's the, the high point of their single-day losses of the Ukrainian side. Um, so, yeah, that 39 number corroborates the 30. Now, perhaps they're rounding up, you know? Perhaps they're, they're, they've said they destroyed 39 tanks, and it could be lower. Maybe it could be higher, but they're rounding down. We'll, we'll find out in time, but um, 30 to 40 tanks still isn't good. They were only given 60 uh, Leopard 2s. They were given uh, 30 to uh, 40 tanks. We gave them, what, 30 M1A1s? We gave them 30 of our own tanks. So, if, in theory, in principle, that could these losses, that could have wiped out literally everything we just gave them not that long ago. That's the entire force of tanks we just gave them. Now, uh, in numbers, not in terms of the actual equipment loss, but in numbers of tanks, that's all the tanks that we've given them destroyed. They say that Ukraine has lost 
30 infantry fighting vehicles. Uh, again, this is the Russian Ministry of Defense because the Russian side is the only one who's really putting out numbers right now because the Ukrainians don't want to acknowledge that they are even in uh, their counteroffensive right now. The Ministry of Defense says that Ukraine has lost 30 infantry fighting vehicles, 38 armored fighting vehicles, and around 13 artillery pieces. They say where they were all destroyed. They lost... The Defense, Ministry of Defense says that the Ukrainians lost two jets, two Storm Shadow cruise missiles. These are the, the long-range missiles provided by Britain to the, United, to the Ukraine, as well as 13 drones. They say that all those are destroyed, shot down by Russian air defenses. It's, it's a mess. A, a Ukraine can pretend that this hasn't begun. They can say that the counteroffensive hasn't begun as much as they want. But at this point, there's no real, there's really no hiding it because you can you can call it a probing attack, but you, probing attacks don't lose ten thousand men in a week. That doesn't happen with a probing attack. Certainly not in a war like this. You lose maybe a thousand if it's a probing attack because your goal is not to try to break through. It's to test the defenses, see what's there, and then you get out. Probing attacks are by their nature low casualty affairs. Not we're going to lose 10,000 men in a week to test the Russian defenses. That's not how that goes. That's what you get when you're attacking and trying to take defenses. See? So the Ukrainians are lying, <laughs> but who, maybe they just have a lot more in store and they don't consider this the offensive because they're going to be committing a lot more men to the attack later on. So perhaps, perhaps they are telling the truth and that the counteroffensive really hasn't begun. Oh, we'll just leave that out there as a possibility. But from the way I see it, it looks like um, they're saying that it hasn't begun until something good goes well, until something goes well for them in the battle, and then they'll go, ah, the great counteroffensive, we've taken this, that, and the third. So it's a possibility that it, it really hasn't begun, and they just have lots of men in reserve that they're planning to throw at the Russian lines as the last-ditch attempt to bring the war to a solid conclusion, or at the very least to put themselves in a better negotiating position. Or perhaps they are lying and that this is the offensive and it's going horribly for them. And they're losing thousands of men every day. Well, a thousand men every day. I wouldn't say thousands, but a thousand men every 24 hours. That's terrible. So we're uh, like I said that this offensive would be, it's going to just eat away at the Ukrainian reserves. You cannot sustain, you can't sustain a thousand losses a day. There's no sustaining that. There's no sustaining that. And if it, let's assume that this offensive goes on for a month, right? A month. You're talking 28, almost 30,000 men who will be taken out of the fight. Ukraine cannot afford losses like that. They they can't. You cannot go on this way. Especially if the Russians are just going to sit there 
and bully you from behind their defensive lines. Like, this is not the way. Now, sure, you, you can say, what else are they supposed to do? And to which I don't, I don't have an answer for you. I, I really don't. Uh, if you're not, if, if negotiating for peace isn't an option on the table for me to go with, I have no answer for you. What are they supposed to do? Hell, if I know, I'm just happy I'm not in their position. But I can tell you what they shouldn't be doing, and this is it. Sending men against this defensive line when you can see that that defensive line is too strong for you. Now, again, perhaps the Ukrainians are planning on committing tens of thousands more men to these battles, and they're just trying to whittle away at Russian defensive lines until they can find something. They can find some falter some chink in the armor that they can rush their reserves through. But I think that if they find that, they're just going to be put into a fire trap by the Russians and bombarded with Russian artillery. I really don't see how this ends well for the Ukrainians with them going on the offensive like this. And I said as much for months now that this is not going to end well for Ukraine. And they are doing exactly what I anticipated that they would do meaning that it's going to end almost exactly the way that I said it would end for them, in disaster. They're going to lose tens of thousands of men. And that's if they stop after a month. Because with these equipment losses, I don't think they I don't think they can go on for a lot longer than a month, to tell you the truth. With, with equipment losses like these, where they're just, they're just losing military vehicles that take us ages to produce are being lost in days. It's it's insane. If they go on for two months, you're talking, oh my goodness, guys. Guys, you're talking nearly 60,000. You're talking the entire Battle of Bakhmut if they try to maintain this offensive at the current rates of loss for just two months. If they try to fight this out for the rest of the summer while the, the weather is still nice, they're going to lose almost as many men as they lost in Bakhmut right after losing the battle of Bakhmut it i it's a disaster and hopefully they bring it to an end soon so they can they can preserve at least something hopefully they realize that they're not going to get through and it's time to come to the negotiating table with no preconditions russia what are your terms and then we'll try to negotiate from there that, that's the only way out of this. They're not going to win through the mil- through a military solution. It It's not there for the Ukrainians. But it's going every bit as terribly as I thought it would. And there's still room for it to get worse. But uh, I'll, I'll move away from the Ukrainians for a second and sort of uh, talk about what else that we've learned from this offensive, not just that it's going terribly for Ukraine, not just that the Russians are more prepared than anyone expected that they would be, even the people who, like myself, thought that they would be ready for this offensive. They're, they're a little too ready for me, okay? I, I, they're not even in their defensive lines yet, and they're beating it off. I'm like, okay, that's just toxic. But what we're also learning from this offensive is, and I suppose we also learned this over the course of the war, but with this offensive, really, with all these equipment losses... Western, we're learning that Western military equipment isn't anywhere near the degree of superiority that we've all been sold on when compared to Russian and foreign equipment. Because, like, 
throughout the war, they've been talking about this equipment. Oh, if we give them these Storm Shadow, oh, if we give them High Mars and M777 howitzers, we give them M1A1 tanks and Leopard 2s and we give them F16s and we give them Stingers and Javelins. They're, they're just going to win the war because um, our weapons are better than the Russians. If we give them pa- air, Patriot air defense systems, they're going to just wipe the floor with the Russian air, air attacks. But none of that has occurred. None of that occurred. In fact, we're seeing Western military equipment get crumpled up and thrown into the trash can and then set on fire. Like that in one picture, you, you see this guy. And I encourage you to watch, uh, it was a Jackson Hinkle episode that I was watching when he put the picture up on the screen. And you can see this dude, this soldier standing in front of a field with like five Bradleys that are burnt out. They're they're black. They are black as night in the middle of the day. So you can see them very well. They're all burnt out. They're all in a line. They're on a column and they're all dead. So... What we're seeing is the destruction of this this illusion of superiority of what the superiority of Western military equipment of American military equipment over all the other comp- competitors. Now, granted, longtime observers who were honest with themselves would have seen that a lot sooner. Me myself, I viewed it as equals because uh, Russia was the number two military in the world. So it's like, you don't get to be number two military in the world from a qualitative standpoint, because India and China had larger militaries, but in terms of quality, it was always Russia, United States, Russia, United States. And I'm like, okay, well, obviously their equipment has to be at least as good as ours, if not better in some regards. That's where I came in from this. But as this war goes on, and perhaps it's just because the Ukrainians aren't very good at using the equipment that we've given them because they haven't trained on it. I'm sure that if it was a battle between NATO and Russia proper, that NATO wouldn't have anywhere near the casualties as Ukraine because NATO would know how to use their own equipment very well. But it's telling. It's telling how the, 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 the ease at which the Russians are just wiping this equipment out. Maybe it's the lack of air cover. I'll, I'll give them that. Maybe it's the lack of air cover. Uh, even if these F-16s make it to Ukraine and it's sometime late summer, early fall, even if they make it over there, a handful of F-16s is not going to give Ukraine control of the skies. It's, it's really not. I don't even know why we've decided to play these games. It's just crazy. But... Perhaps it's because they don't have air cover. Maybe maybe that's it. Maybe that's the reason that all these land vehicles are just getting absolutely washed. And maybe that's the reason the Ukrainian infantry is just getting dog-walked right back into their trenches, either into their trenches or into a grave. Because without air cover, the armor is worthless. And without armor, infantry offensive just get lit up by machine gun fire. So without the air... You lose the war, and you lose the war fast. So perhaps that is the the biggest flaw in this offensive here, the lack of air cover. And the Ukrainians are now paying an incredibly heavy price for that, trying to fight World War I against World War II. 
it's it's bad i i don't know how else to put it it's really bad for the ukrainians on so many levels and that's probably the reason why they're trying to resort to acts of terrorism as a form of warfare because if if it is so blatantly clear especially now that you're you are not equipped to win at a conventional level because if you don't have air cover the russians can just blow up all your stuff and then it doesn't matter that you have all these western tanks it doesn't matter that you have all these western armored vehicles it doesn't matter that you have good infantry if the russians can just blow you up the second your, your tanks start crossing the field it doesn't matter you lose the end and maybe that's why they they're starting to sort of shift towards the position that okay we can't win on the battlefield so now we're going to start attacking behind enemy lines we can't fight you fair and square so now we're going to start biting and kicking and pulling your hair and poking your eyes out and i think that that's going to make it end even worse for ukraine because then the russians are going to treat it as a counterterrorism operation and that means attacking the decision-making sensors, which is what we've been seeing the Russians start to do lately. We don't even know where Zluzhny is. Uh, Zelensky still has yet to return to his country. It's, it's bad. It's really bad. And I don't expect it to get better for the Ukrainians over the course of this next week as they are likely to start feeding in more troops towards weekend points or points that the Ukrainians perceive as having been weakened on the Russian line. And they just get absolutely mauled by Russian artillery. And another thing that is very noticeable in this war is the role of drones. It's not the bomber role that you see with the United States, how we use drones as sort of an unmanned bomber vehicle where it has a missile, it can track you from way thousands of miles up, they can fire the missile, and you can hit you. But with the Russians and the Ukrainians, the not the way that the Russians and the Ukrainians have been using them. The Russians and Ukrainians use them for reconnaissance. You will fly the drone, the unmanned vehicle, over the enemy territory, over the enemy airspace. They will risk getting hit by a missile and being shot down by the enemy, which means you don't lose any men, but you lose equipment, but you don't lose men. And by having the drone do take on the dangerous work of scouting out the enemy lines, now you can target your artillery and your missiles on certain locations behind. Because with the drone, you have the drone up there, it can see everything with its camera, and then you have some dude on the ground with what essentially amounts to a, a military-grade iPad. He can see everything uh with a, a slight delay but the drone can have a laser de a laser designator on it and the guy with the ipad can go okay i want to put call in an airstrike right there the drone will pop its laser designator on the target and then you have the artillery modern artillery locking in on that laser designator and then they fire off and you get this you can have great distances between the artillery and the places that you're bombing with the artillery and great distance between the missiles as well because it's not just basic uh, artillery where you're firing artillery shells but rocket artillery or multiple rocket launch systems where you're firing missiles at, at a target 
you can have the drones call in the strike instead of having a, a, a team go in and they have to do the laser, laser designator or having a helicopter or anything like that. You have the unmanned vehicle go in. It can scout behind enemy lines. It can call in airstrikes and it can give you a very clear picture with its cameras of what the enemy line looks like and enemy troop movements and vehicle movements and w which places have the most dug in defenses reconnaissance drones have really come into their own in modern warfare as a means of reconnaissance rather than as a bomber because as a bomber it, it really only fu functions well in uncontested airspace which is what the u.s has had in its wars for in the middle east but when contested airspace it serves the purpose better as a reconnaissance vehicle and then you leave the heavy the heavy bombing towards multiple rocket launch systems and artillery. This is very much an artillery war. Perhaps it's just a difference of doctrine. And again, perhaps it's a difference of circumstance, but that's uh, one of the other things that we've observed with this war. So there will be lots of lessons to be learned from this. I, I say it, I've said it a, a number of times, but there are lots of lessons to learn from this war for those willing to see them. And I have the privilege of being able to see them. And I imagine that there will be militaries that adjust the way that they fight wars based on the outcomes and the conclusions of this war. This, the first really major war between combatants that can hit each other back instead of just, oh, the United States bombs some country that can't even defend itself. We're seeing two countries that can really fight it out so this is a, a really good proving ground of military tactics and doctrine and the requirements that are needed to execute on tactics and doctrine. So very, very interesting. And now we shall uh, uh, leave it there. I believe I've covered all my notes on this. Let's go. But now we'll get into our final talk of the day, which is a Chinese spy base in Cuba. Now, the Wall Street Journal was the publisher who first uh, set this story up, but I cannot read the Wall Street Journal in full because I am not subscribed to them. So I went to the New York Times instead. Uh, <laughs> and so China's setting up a spy base in Cuba. Now, the National Security Council spokesman, a fake job, but, uh, <laughs> but National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said at first when this came out because it was a while ago that these reports were not accurate and you also have the deputy foreign minister of cuba carlos f decosio writing on twitter that he said the chinese spying facilities uh the idea that there were chinese spying facilities on cuba was a quote slanderous accusation slanderous speculation there we go so there is a counter argument here so you can choose who you want to believe do you, are we, do you believe that there is a spy base on cuba or will you go with the cuban government and john kirby in that there is not i'll leave that up because as of now it's kind of speculation and, and i say kind of speculation because you can't necessarily trust things like this. But we saw how our government and how the the press, the propaganda press, 
responded to the Chinese balloon that flew over the United States a few months ago. We saw they responded to that. You had the government denying that it existed until it was uh, until it was over Montana. And then they came out and said, yeah, yeah, it's there, but it's, it's not really a threat. And then it was, oh, it's a national security threat and we need to shoot it down, but we're going to wait till it flies over the entire country to do that. And so with the, the China derangement syndrome, the Russia derangement syndrome, it's, it's increasingly hard to trust claims, negative claims about Russia and China, especially when they come out of sources like uh, American, American, British, or European uh, are news publications. I'll say that it's increasingly hard to trust those. So I will leave open the possibility that this is a nothing burger. But I do want to talk about the principle, which is the the primary thing that I'm concerned about here. Uh, not necessarily the Chinese of a spy facility, although that is something to be concerned about if it is there, if it is there, but. It wouldn't be there if we had our priorities straight. Now, what do I mean by if we had our priorities straight? Well, I mean that this is the problem with America focusing on things that quite literally don't matter to the United States. Like, let's say there is a spy base being established that was established by the Chinese in Cuba back in 2019, because that's what the story says, that they were doing this since 2019. Okay. What, how could this have gone differently? How could, what have we could have, what could we have done differently? Oh my goodness, I'm tripping over all my words. What could we have done differently to stop this? Could we have normalized relations with Cuba so they wouldn't be incentivized to be weaponized against us in this manner? Could we have, I don't know, established trading and diplomatic ties with Cuba? Could we have talked to Cuba? about our concerns so that we didn't repeat a Cuban Missile Crisis? Because we opened up a direct line of communication with Moscow after the Cuban Missile Crisis. Why is there no direct line of communication with Cuba? Because if we if we had good relations with Cuba, if we were willing to leave the Cuban government alone, even after their revolution and the day we became communists, if we were willing to leave them alone, there wouldn't have been a Cuban Missile Crisis. If you focused on Cuba, and having good relations with Cuba, but we didn't. This is the Achilles heel of America's interventionist foreign policy. This is the Achilles heel, or, or, or at least the, the modern slate of interventionism, because earlier versions of interventionism was us involving ourselves in Latin America. But this here's the Achilles heel of the current uh, slate of policy that we have the acceptable policy, which is that we need to be involved in Europe, the Middle East, and Asia, and we need to go contain China and go stand up to Russia. The Achilles heel is Cuba. Why is why are they the Achilles heel? Because we leave them completely open in the wind. We leave them isolated, which opens the door towards foreign powers inviting themselves in for dinner with the Cubans. And then we have to deal with that. It's and it's unnecessary because we could have just had good relations with Cuba and we could bypass these problems. But let's say that there is a spy base being set up by China in Cuba to monitor communications coming out of the United States. One, it's what we get for meddling in Taiwan all, all day and all night. And I said as much, 
I've said as much. If the Chinese did half in of what we do in Taiwan, if the Chinese did half as much in Cuba, we'd be ready for war. Cuba's 90 miles off the coast of Florida. Taiwan's 100 miles away from China. I routinely make comparisons between Taiwan and Cuba in their relationship between China and the United States. And now here's China reaching out towards one of the most sensitive places on the map for us, which is Cuba, doing to us not even a fraction of what we do to them with Taiwan. And now it's a major story. Now it's something that we need to be afraid of. Now it's, oh, we have to fight China harder. We can't adjust and make our, our policy better. We can't do smarter things. We can't leave them alone. No, we need to fight China harder so they can double down on Cuba as well. It's the Achilles heel. And this is the problem with America focusing on things that do not matter to the United States and neglecting the things that do. We've been sitting here having no relationship with one of our most consequential neighbors, Cuba, a country that has already invited foreign powers into our hemisphere to antagonize us after we tried to overthrow their government. Which, for those who know their history, you probably, you're probably thinking about exactly what I'm talking about, the Cuban Missile Crisis, which is a crisis instigated by us stationing nukes in Turkey and again trying to overthrow the Cuban Missile Government, the Cuban Missile Government, trying to overthrow the Cuban government. In the Bay of Pigs incident. The problem with that was not that JFK didn't send in the Air Force. He was too soft. The problem was that you decided to overthrow their government. And then they resorted to the Soviets to counterbalance us to preserve their own sovereignty. Because we didn't leave them alone. And we did not prioritize having good relations with them. That was the Cuban Missile Crisis. I mean, the article itself even said... That Cuba, uh, quote, Cuba proximity, I think they meant Cuba's proximity, Cuba proximity has long made it a strategically valuable foothold for U.S. adversaries, perhaps most famously during the Cold War when the Soviet Union attempted to store nuclear missiles on the island nation during the Cuban Missile Crisis, end quote. So even in this article, they acknowledge the importance of Cuba after the fact of the Chinese setting up this spy base. But if it's so important, if it has long been the mo a very strategically important foothold for US adversaries, why have we not been boosting our relations in Cuba? Why have we not been building? We, we always talk when, when our, our agents and our government uh, stooges when, when the president and the secretaries go overseas to uh, strengthen ties with this or that country, strengthen ties with South Korea, with our allies, they, they, they can go overseas to do that, but you couldn't go strengthen some ties with Cuba? You couldn't go build a relationship? You couldn't go do something useful to cover our flanks? Because by leaving Cuba in the wind with no relationship at all, you're just asking for trouble the second something goes wrong. Because now they are incentivized to invite foreign powers in. If you're not going to be there for them, they're going to invite other powers in. It's, it's crazy. Like, again, I want to emphasize 
how much the Cuban Missile Crisis mattered to us and mattered more to us than Checkpoint fucking Charlie and what the Soviets were doing in Hungary and uh, Turkey. None of that mattered to us. You think Korea, Vietnam, that did not matter. Those did not matter. Cuba was everything. Why? Because Cuba is over here. And what matters over here matters over here, not over there. What matters over there doesn't matter over here. What matters over there only matters over here when we involve ourselves over there. But with the Cuban Missile Crisis, when we tried to overthrow Cuba's government and failed, the Cubans got together with the Soviets, and then the Russians tried to station their intermediate-range nuclear missiles in Cuba, which would have allowed them to hit any city in the United States in minutes, i.e. we would not have had much in the way of response time to deal with that, which is exactly the position we put the Soviets in by pu putting our nukes in Europe and Turkey. We call it a nuclear umbrella. No, it's, it's a nuclear lance. We have a nuclear pike. Forget a lance, it's a pike. It's, it's a really, really long stick with a knife at the end so that you can poke someone long before they can even get within a touching range of you. It's a, it's a nuclear pike aimed at the Soviets. That's what we did, and then the Soviets gave us a taste of our own medicine, and we almost ended the world over that. Because as they were sending in their ships, we blockaded Cuba, threatening to shoot at anything that tried to pass without our permission. We almost killed every person on the planet over Cuba. But it wouldn't have happened if we, one, didn't try to overthrow the Cuban government under the communists, and two, didn't station nuclear weapons in places that they didn't need to be in, like Turkey, like Europe, doing unnecessary extra things around the world, creating problems for ourselves here. And now, and we run around pretending that all these other countries are vital to U.S. interests. Oh, Ukraine is so important. Defending Taiwan is vital to U.S. interests. Oh, the United States is a superpower. It has interests all around the world, all around the world except our own neighborhood. Because that, because we, we say all this, we do all these, these weird things around the world. We're going to go build the quad, an alliance between us, India, Japan, and Australia to contain China. We're going to do a submarine deal between us, the UK, and Australia. We're going we're gonna to do all these things around the world except for have a good relationship with Cuba. We're going to leave ourselves completely exposed in our in our own backyard, not even having cordial relations with one of our most important nations, Cuba. We've have, we learn nothing from history. We learn nothing. And we prioritize all these other places around the world that literally do not matter. None of these places matter. What country or collection of countries on the planet? could possibly be more important to the United States than the countries that live right next to us. Who's more important for, for U.S. national security, Taiwan or Mexico? Who is more important for us, Ukraine or Canada? Who's more important, Israel or Cuba? Who is more important, Saudi Arabia or Venezuela? We, we just talked about how Iran is there. The president is taking a, a tour of the Caribbean. He's going to Venezuela. He's heading up Nicaragua. Then he's going to Cuba. 
And we have no, you know what all those countries have in common? We have no solid relationship with any of them. But we're strengthening ties in Europe. We're strengthening ties in East Asia. Because the U.S. has interests over there. But what about our interests over here? Well, those don't count. Our own neighborhood doesn't count. But we're going to be involved in the rest of the world. It makes no sense. And it leaves us completely wide open to get blindsided by things like this when other countries start to give us a taste of our own medicine and start meddling in our neighborhood. And it really didn't need to be this way. Who is more important? The countries that live next to us or these countries thousands of miles away? Is the quad more important for the security of America than the nations of the Caribbean? Is NATO really more important to us than Latin America? No, they're not. But we pretend that they are. And that's the problem. We pretend that these places are more important than they are to us. They're important to the people living there, but we don't live there. We don't even live close to there. They're not that important to us. Our neighbors are, and our neighbors always will be more important. We can pretend that they're not, and then we'll just pay the consequences like we seem to be doing right now with this, with this base that the Chinese are setting up in Cuba. None of these places are more important than our neighbors. But because we pretend that they are, we are now facing, we now face having yet another crisis with Cuba. And I'll be the first to say I do not trust the leadership, the current leadership of the United States in the slightest to handle that crisis. The, the, the leadership of the United States back in the 1960s couldn't be trusted. It was one man, Kennedy. One man kept us from ending it all. Kept us from committing nuclear suicide and taking the entire planet with us. Because everybody was in Kennedy's ear saying, use the nukes, use the nukes, use the nukes, kill them, blow, blow them up, nuke them, nuke them, nuke them, use the nukes, blow them up. Everybody was in his ear saying that. The CIA, the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, everybody was in his ear trying to force him to kill the world. Because that's what it, it wouldn't have been just a war between us and Cuba. It wouldn't have been just a war between us and the Soviets. It would have been the end of the world. We would have literally committed nuclear suicide because that's what nuclear war is. Committing suicide, an act of national suicide. We would have committed nuclear suicide were it not for one man, and that was Kennedy. Do we really believe that Biden has the mental fortitude of Kennedy to stand up to literally the entire Washington apparatus telling him to drop the nukes on Cuba? No, I don't I, I don't trust that name for a second. I don't trust him, I don't trust Kamala, I don't trust Blinken's loser ass. I don't trust uh, Lloyd Austin. I don't trust John Kirby. I don't trust any of these people. They, they cannot be trusted. They are not to be trusted. And honestly, a lot of these presidential candidates aren't to be trusted either. There's Trump. He didn't get us into a war. You can trust him not to push the nuke. No, not to push the red button. The rest of these folks, I don't know. I really don't. Maybe RFK Jr. And So that's two people and that's it. And neither of them are in power. That's great. That's magnificent. We are not prepared for this kind of a crisis right now. We don't have the leadership to handle this kind of a crisis 
in anything close to a responsible manner. And it, I'll, I'll admit, one of the things I liked with Obama was that he began normalizing relations with Cuba. It just made sense. Why wouldn't you have relations with Cuba? And I believe this was a mistake that Trump made during his administration, shutting that process down and not having a functioning relationship with our neighbor. Canada, Mexico, and Cuba are our most are the most important countries to the United States because they are our neighbors. Nobody tops those three. It doesn't matter what, what the list is, but it doesn't matter what they do. Those are the most important countries to us from a strategic point of view because they are our neighbors, our closest neighbors. They are infinitely more important than anybody else. So it only made sense to have relations with Cuba, but Trump, he cut it off. And that's, he got, that's a mistake. And I hope he can correct it because Biden isn't. I don't even think he's thinking about Cuba all that much. Nobody was thinking about Cuba until now. So maybe something good might come out of this and that we might open a direct line of communication with Cuba, but I don't know. I don't know. And it's... Uh, if we're going to put America first, right? If we're going to put America first, then we need to stop neglecting our neighbors. And we need to stop neglecting our relationships with our neighbors. Especially to in favor of playing these games and pursuing grandeur overseas. Defending democracy on Taiwan and freeing Hong Kong means nothing if the Chinese and the Russians have missiles pointed at us that are based in Cuba and Mexico and Canada. That's going to do literally nothing for us. We will achieve nothing by having Western solidarity if it means that the Mexicans can be weaponized against us in the same way that we've weaponized the Ukrainians against Russia. Our neighbors must always be our top priority. It is the America first foreign policy. That's why we had the Monroe Doctrine. I say we had, because clearly no one was enforcing it at the time. The Chinese just built this spy base and no no one did anything about it. Okay, that, that's nice. <coughs> that's nice. No, no one cared about our neighbors. Uh, no one cares about our neighbors until they become a problem for us. And that's the problem. We should be working with our neighbors. I'm not saying we need to go build a, a high-speed railway for the Cubans or the Nicaraguans and the Venezuelans. I'm saying have a functioning relationship. Have something going on. Have a trade deal, like something. Instead of just leaving them, leaving it as an open-ended question as to whether or not they're a friend of the United States. That's a terrible idea. And we paid the consequences. We paid it back in the 1960s, and it looks like we're about to pay it now. I mean, what, what, good, is, what good is defending democracy on these other places if our democracy is jeopardized because we neglected the places on the planet that actually mattered the most to us? It just, it just doesn't make sense. It really isn't. We, and this is my, my, the biggest conclusion I have here, we need to get our priorities in order. Our priorities are not Europe. It's not the Middle East. It's not the Indo-Pacific region. Our priorities must remain the United States first 
and the Americas second. Nothing can come between that. Everything else can come third, fourth, fifth, and second. Uh, 22nd, as far as I'm concerned. But first is America. Second is North America. Third is Latin America. And then everything else can come after. Nothing else matters if our neighbors are not with us. Nothing else matters. And we don't need them to be uh, allies. We just need them to not be hostile. It's really easy. It's really easy. But will we choose to do the easy thing that needs to be done? Who knows? Who knows? As it stands, I'm the only one talking about it. Uh, this, not the, the topic matter, but uh, the subject matter, but the idea of us having functioning relationships with our neighbors. I'm really the only one talking about this. You'll, you'll get... You'll get the leftists saying we shouldn't be interfering in their governments, and I'm right there with them. You'll get the conservatives saying uh, we need to stop the Chinese and the Russians from doing things over there. And I'm like, okay, cool, but are we going to have functioning relationships with our neighbors so that we don't even end up in this situation anymore? Uh, uh, and that's radio silence. But hopefully, hopefully, something good can come out of this crisis. And that's always the hope. But that, my lovely listeners is all that I have for you today. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The the offensive has begun in Ukraine, and we will observe its developments as it goes. But no matter what happens, we will have fun watching it together. I'll be, uh, I've been your host, uh, Haishan Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, Servus.